0: If you choose to become inactive or to leave the restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where will you go? What will you do?
1: You're entering Outer Brightness.
0: But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our spirit trespasses, just in case you didn't get it in those first few, few verses, right? You you, you were dead even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. Did I born myself again? No. He made me alive together with Christ. Listen, I can no more manufacture the second birth than I manufactured the first one. Fireflies. Welcome back to the Outer Brightness podcast. With this week, we have a special guest here with us, Brianna Flournoy. Uh, she's with us for a number of reasons, but first and foremost, she's with us because, as you just heard, we just rolled out a new intro for our podcast with a brand new song written and performed by Brianna. So, Brianna, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. And uh, <laughs> what can you tell us about the song? What What's the title? When did you start working on it? What does it mean to you?
1: Yeah, so um, this song actually came as an inspiration uh, because I was a new ex-Mormon and I was also in a new relationship with my husband, now husband. And we start. We had already written a song together and we wanted to create another one that would kind of give, um, that would portray like the kind of feeling that an ex-Mormon has when they've come to Christ. And the transition from, being a sinner to being with Christ, in Christ. And uh, my husband started writing some lyrics and he came up with this little tune and I kind of took that and like created more of a song so that it just, you know, have a whole song. So it's called In Your Eyes um, and it sets up the stage where you're kind of like um, in despair and you're, looking for hope, and then God comes in and pulls you and saves you. And that's when the chorus comes in. You hear the chorus in the intro, um, and the words are, how can you look upon the sinner with such love? Uh, grace overflows my cup. All of my, what is it?
2: Uh, all of my heart. All, all of my soul was, and heart yeah. soul, yeah. My heart has been revived. Yeah. yeah.
1: In you, I'm satisfied. So it just shows that when you leave mormonism there is hope and there is life and um beauty beyond measure
0: yeah thank you i got to tell you you know we started the conversation about uh putting together a new intro several months ago and to kick off with our our 51st episode which also coincidentally is this episode so congratulations guys we we hit 50 um And, uh, you know, when we started talking about, we, we, we were looking for a song that, that had more urgency, um, immediacy and, and something that we could, uh, put some voiceover clips on. Um, and Brianna, you suggested you had something that, that you were working on that, that you thought fit that bill. Uh, but I got to tell you when, when you asked, uh, several months ago, if you could sing the chorus, uh, over, over the end part of the song uh, I was excited to to hear it and when you sent it over the other day I was just blown away by how beautiful it is so thank you for that
2: yeah I really uh I really appreciated it too because uh you know we got that quote now from uh Elder Ballard and it's so it's so dark it's so uh so abusive and manipulative and uh just it's a horrible quote it just makes you feel you know, that despair inside all over again. But then it it cuts out and you hear that music and it's just so, so the opposite of that, you know, you feel that, uh, Mm -hmm. that hope, you know, there is somewhere to go if you leave Mormonism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's someone to go to. And that, that, that's the whole point, right? Is that the Ballard quote, he's asking, you know, what are you, what are you going to do if you leave the LDS church or where are you going to go? You know, and he's, he's, alluding to the question that, that the disciples had for, uh, for Jesus, right? Where would, where would we go for you have the words of eternal life? Um, but he's tying that to the LDS church. And it's, it's just interesting that juxtaposition, right? Where will you go? We'll, we'll go to Christ, right? That's where we will go. Um, and you know, also we have, we're, we're kicking off, uh, this episode, a new, uh, outro song from Adam's road. Uh, that also ties into, uh, that Ballard quote. So it's called heaven and earth and, uh, it's a beautiful song. So you'll hear that at the end of this episode. Um, Matthew thoughts on the new intro. Um,
3: I don't really have much new to say. I just wanted to also say thank you to Brianna for doing that for us. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was a really great song. I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah. It's exactly the kind of tone that we want to, that would, that's great to kick off each episode to get the, the tone going for, for our discussions. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
2: I do have to, I do have to shine the, the light on her a little bit. Cause she's, uh, she's always there in the background, you know, doing stuff and it doesn't like to be the center of attention at all. <laughs> but, uh, you know, both of, there's two different, uh, musical compositions in that in that intro and she wrote both of them Mm -hmm. she wrote the the music that that is in the background with uh elder ballard and then and then the new one as well so yeah definitely uh very very helpful for us (laughs) we
0: appreciate it for sure she's she's provided our intro music from the get-go and uh we're very thankful to her for that Uh, she's very talented and we really appreciate it um and yeah for sure that we wanted to with this first uh first introduction for our listeners to the new intro, uh kind of give a nod to that uh that first piece, Can I get an amen, which we've used from episode one on, uh, because it is a beautiful piece as well. So all right. Uh Michael, you wanna kick off uh the, the topic for us, for our listeners, we uh, we invited Brianna to join us for the entire time today because uh, we thought that it would be good to have a female voice and a female's experience, uh, given the topic that we're discussing today. So,
2: yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was filled with pride when hands were laid on my head at 12 years old and the ironic priesthood was passed down to me. Four years later, I received the Melchizedek Priesthood the same way. I felt incredibly blessed to hold the authority to act in God's name. With this special authority, I had more right to preach the gospel and baptize people than any pastor on earth. I had more power than the Pope because only the priesthood held by my church was valid, and only it could seal in heaven what was sealed on earth. With the priesthood, I could change someone's eternal trajectory and help them achieve exaltation The priesthood offices gave me great faith that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was true. I would look at Protestant churches and think, where are their apostles? How could they even claim authority without a prophet? As it turned out, the, the priesthood that I believed I held was an idol that usurped the trust I should have been placing in God. If I gave a priesthood blessing and it worked, it was because of my faithfulness. If it didn't work, it was also my fault. God wasn't even in the picture. In this episode of the Outer Brightness podcast, we will be discussing one of the biggest pitfalls to leaving Mormonism: priesthood authority. Uh, so first, let me uh, let me ask this first question to you, Matthew. Um, we'll kind of go around on this, but did you uh, did you or anyone that you know experience miracles through the LDS priesthood? And how
3: do you explain that now? So I've heard probably just as you all have, I've heard stories from people giving their accounts of moments where they thought that they saw miracles, um, through an administration of an ordinance or a blessing of the priesthood, the LDS priesthood. So, but in terms of personal experiences, um, at the time, I think there was one instance I could really think of and remember where I felt like it was a faith-promoting experience that boosted my faith in the priesthood and in my calling as a missionary. And that was during my mission. And to be honest, um, no, I do remember where it was. It was in uh, Belgium, in Liège. It was the town I was serving in. And it was just kind of a routine lesson that we gave to a member they called us and they, and they said we'd like you to come over we'd like to have the missionaries over and so we kind of gave them a short lesson uh, but he said he wasn't feeling well he had like a really bad uh sore throat you know kind of cold symptoms and so uh he said it was you know he felt really terrible you know and physically he felt really terrible so he asked for a blessing so we went there we gave the lesson uh we we gave him the priesthood blessing and then we said goodbye and everything was fine and then the next uh, week or two at church, we talked to him later and he told his, he was telling us he and his wife were there and they were explaining to us that he felt like within an hour or two after we gave them the blessing, he felt like all of his symptoms had, had been alleviated. They didn't, he didn't have any symptoms from that sickness. So we all felt that that was kind of like an answer to our prayers or, or a confirmation to us that God was working through us in the priesthood as for how I would explain that now um, there's a, there's a lot of different ways you could explain that Um, there's, I was going to recommend there's someone named Justin Peters. And if you look on YouTube, he has a YouTube channel called YouTube or sorry, Justin Peters ministries. And he is, uh, Oh man, I should have looked up what his condition is, but he, he has a, he has a debilitating uh, physical condition since birth. um, And uh, as a, teenager he kind of went through tried to go see these faith healers to heal him and none of them were successful and so he kind of you know he kind of started to see beyond you know behind the the curtain and kind of see that these were you know these faith healings were not genuine and so he's kind of dedicated his ministry to you know to showing that you know a lot of these people that claim to have this power to heal don't have that power and so he talks about this he expl- he talks about how well why do some people go on stage to go see um like todd bentley or you know any of these other preachers, and go for healing and then they say that their neck pain is gone or their chronic back pain is gone and he explains that there there are kind of like two ways of 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 healing one is kind of like a, a psychosomatic method of healing and one is like an actual genuine miraculous healing so the genuine miraculous healing is something that is supernatural something that just could not happen naturally. For example, Jesus's ministry, he would, you know, heal the he would uh heal people instantly of their leprosy, he would give sight to the blind, that kind of thing, raise people from the dead. That kind of thing cannot be explained um through medicine. But the other form, like I said, the psychosomatic kind of aspect, he explained is something that is possible and it is a real phenomenon, a physical phenomenon where people are expecting something. They're really expecting something and their brain actually affects their, um, their, their, not their genetics. What's the word I'm looking for. It affects their body, how it functions. So it it is a real phenomenon where their brain can actually remove pain or, you know, alleviate symptoms, that kind of a thing. Um, just by pure belief, it's, it's kind of like a placebo effect, you know, um, it's similar to that. So, he explains that a lot of these people who do claim to be say or claim to be healed. It's kind of, that's kind of what's happening with them. So that's a possibility. Um, sorry to go through all that, but I'd really recommend Justin Peters, uh, YouTube channel. But um, other than that, I mean, I do believe that God can still heal by our faith. And I'm not saying it's outside of God's will. And it's certainly within his sovereignty that he could heal anyone at any time. So it could have been, a, I mean, it could have been a genuine healing, but it did not necessitate a special priesthood from the LDS church to do so.
2: That's really interesting. So, uh, <clears throat> I guess, does that mean that I could like, if I really believed that I can grow my hair back that I could maybe mm. <laughs>
0: it's too late, isn't it? <laughs> have, you, have you tried Rogaine? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh. Oh. I didn't mean to make you answer that. We mark that time for an edit. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's um, All
4: right.
3: <laughs> yeah what's uh, what's the name for Paul's alter ego? We need a name for him. You know, we got Mr. Pibb for Michael.
2: I don't know. I just call him the old fossil Paul. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh. I was thinking instead of Paul Bunyan, like Paul onion, you know, like oh, yeah. once, once <laughs> the onion, once you slice that onion, you know, Makes the vapor is getting here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: I like it.
2: Uh, I like okay. It. Paul, uh, what are your thoughts on this question?
0: Yeah. So I don't think I ever experienced um, either giving or receiving or, or hearing about someone having been given a, a priesthood blessing that was a miraculous healing. I saw many priesthood blessings given. Um, I saw priesthood blessings of healing given uh, to people who then, you know, a few weeks later were given a a blessing of release and passed away. So um, I think every Latter-day Saint has to deal with those types of situations where they start asking questions. You know, we've got this priesthood authority and we're supposed to be able to heal. Um, and everybody asks those questions in elders quorum, you know, what, what happened in this situation? And, and, you know, you get the, the explanations from people that, you know, oh, well, you got to make sure that you're, what you're speaking in the blessing is the, the will of the spirit. If you're not in tune with the spirit, then what you're speaking is just your will. And that's not going to result in, in, in a healing. Um, but I did, I did give some blessings that, uh, when I was a Latter-day Saint, I kind of viewed as as successful, um, maybe if not miraculous. But so my uh, my sister, the this the winter after I graduated high school had uh, gone to the institute at the local college and was uh, hanging out there for an evening of of I guess they were playing games. I don't know what they were playing, but she was she was running and and hyperextended her knee. And pretty badly, to the point that it sheared off part of the part of the top of her uh, her tibia amphibia bone. And um, she called me and I went and picked her up and you know helped her get into the car and took her to the hospital. and my dad met us there. And you know, we were in the ER waiting for X-rays and uh, casting and that type of thing. And uh, my former high school basketball coach, And his two sons were brought in on an ambulance. They had been on their way home from a basketball game that evening and, and slipped off the road in the snow. And, uh, my basketball coach was, was hurt, but not, uh, not terribly badly. And, uh, but one of his sons was unable to move and they were fearful that he might be paralyzed. So my dad suggested that I go offer to give, you know, that that he and I would give them a, a priesthood blessing. And uh, I, I struggled with that because I did not like the man at all. <laughs> uh, he had been my coach my junior year uh, of high school, and um, we did not see eye to eye on my skills as a basketball player. And uh, so I ended up switching schools my senior year. So I, I did not have any, any love for this man at all. Um, but I went in and asked him if, you know, he and his son would would like a priesthood blessing. And he said, yes. Um, and I didn't even know if he was LDS when I asked him, uh, I didn't, I wasn't that close with him. Um, but we gave him and his son a priesthood blessing and, uh, his son ended up being fine. And, and so did my coach. And, um, he wrote me a letter, uh, a few months later, just a little while before I left on my mission, thanking me for that. And so I, I did view that for a long time as like a successful, uh, blessing. Um, Another one was uh, when my son Curtis was uh, was little he had uh, a speech development problem and um, couldn't couldn't speak um, the the noises that he made were just unintelligible noises um, and we you know took him to uh, sign language classes at my uh, My my wife's parents, their Baptist church offered sign language classes. We took him to sign language classes and learned sign language with him because the doctors were telling us that they didn't think he would ever be able to speak. And so, you know, I, of course, we as a family prayed for him. I gave him blessings. Um, And then one time when he was uh, was 2003, so he was just about a year and a half old. Uh, Well, no, let's see. He was, uh, he was uh, two, two, almost two and a half years old. We went out to uh, Utah to go to Yellowstone with my family, and while we were there, uh, my dad gave him a blessing, and he blessed him that uh, that he would be healed, and he would he would be able to speak. And it was just a few um, few months after that, uh, a new pediatrician came into the practice where we where we were taking our children, and. Um, suggested that we try having tubes put in his his ears because he was convinced given my son's history of of ear infections that if we put tubes in his ears that uh, that would clear out his ears and he'd be able to speak so we ended up doing that and uh now i can't get him to stop talking ever so um you know viewed that as as a success again um and then the second part of the question is how do i view that now um I mean, now, I view it as uh, providential, for sure, um, because we weren't getting answers from doctors previous to that. Um, But at the same time, um, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, the rest of my wife's family, all of my wife's parents' church family were also praying for him concurrently with the blessing having having been given to him. So um, it's definitely a... uh, a medical success where we were finally had a doctor that recognized what needed to be done. Uh, But I also view it as providential, but I don't necessarily think that it was specific to the blessing that was given.
2: All right, thanks for sharing that. Brianna, did you experience anything like that? I mean, I know you didn't hold the priesthood, but you know, witnessing that.
1: Yeah, no, not really. I, I got to see a lot of blessings like given like when we were sick or father's blessings, uh, right before the school year. Um, and you know, if you were like, my, my, my dad would have us write down uh, what we remembered from our father's blessings and like be mindful of everything that we needed to do to be successful in school. And if we were to be faithful, these things, and we'll
2: find success. But... Um, so I had a couple of, of experiences myself. Um, I just, I just, this one just came to my mind, but there was a, a woman, I was still a, a pretty new missionary on my mission, and uh, she was less active, and she just started talking uh, about how like her mom had come to visit, and... And she had died during the visit and was just talking about a bunch of things. And I just had this really strong impression that she's going to ask for a blessing. And then she did. She asked for a blessing. And I kind of got this impression that I'm the one that's supposed to give it. And so she wanted assurance that, you know, because her dad wanted to come visit and she didn't want a repeat of, of what happened before. Um, so I gave her a blessing and just felt really inspired to say, you know, like, you're, everything's going to be okay when your dad comes and visits. And so he came and visited, everything was fine. It was viewed as being uh, being a miraculous thing. Um, the way I would kind of explain that now is just that I, I think I'm pretty good at reading people. And I'd I've seen people, like, gear up to ask for a blessing before. So I really think it was just kind of me seeing the signs of what was going to happen and predicting that she was going to ask for this blessing. And I think a lot of that was just the feeling that I had. I wanted her to feel assured. And so I think that's why I said that that it was going to work out that way. And I think the odds were pretty good that, you know, both of her parents weren't going to pass away while visiting. So um but then I also had a companion on my mission. Uh he said that he had a horrible leg act or a horrible accident that injured his leg and he, he shouldn't have been able to walk and he was given a priesthood blessing and because of that, you know, he was able to walk again. And I heard him bear testimony to that several times. Um I have a, a I know an LDS person who claims he casts out demons using the priesthood or did on his mission several times. And then my dad, uh, he used to have this issue where his heartbeat would start his heart would start beating real rapidly if he drank ice water. And so he'd ask me for a blessing and I I'd, I'd do that and it would calm his heart down. Like he, it would go back to normal. And so all of this stuff uh, is, there are all things that when I was LDS, I viewed it as being proof that the LDS church was obviously true because we have this priesthood and it, it does these miraculous things. Um, but I think there's a lot to consider now. Um, and, and probably the most difficult one to to try to come up with a reason for is casting out demons. But I think that it is possible um, that somebody can be a saved Christian in the the Mormon church and just not be pulled out of the organization yet. And I think there is power in invoking Christ's name. And so I don't think that that is necessarily something that the priesthood is causing to happen. Um, I think other times it could just be, you know, coincidence when it comes to these miracles if there was already going to be a natural healing because priesthood blessings are given quite often and in the event that there was already going to be a healing uh, or healing was going to take place the the blessing gets credit for that healing when it does happen and there's no way to know if it would have happened or not um, without the priesthood blessing but i think 99 of the time like Uh, Matthew was saying there's a placebo effect when you receive one of these blessings. I mean, it just, uh, there's just kind of this good feeling that comes from having people put their hands on your head and you hear, you know, people usually talk pretty, pretty calmly, uh, pretty stoically when they're giving these blessings and they talk like they have this authority um, and they're, they're just giving you these blessings. And so it automatically calms you down. And, and I think just that effect by itself, you know, probably has some healing property. So I don't think that, that there's a special priesthood at all that is causing any of these things to happen. All right, so move on to the next question. Um, I'm going to ask you this first, Paul. What did holding the priesthood mean to you? did it give your family a sense of security that you held it?
0: Um, yeah. So when I was a teenager, uh, you know, Brianna mentioned that her, that she would get blessings at the beginning of school year. I got those as well from my father. Um, it was always very comforting. Um, you know, gave you a sense that the coming school year would be a success. You would, you would be able to, Attain good grades, and and uh, you know it was it was always a peaceful thing to to have happen going into the school year, but in terms of me myself holding the priesthood when I was a teenager, uh, it felt like a heavy weight. Um, you know, as a, as a deacon, a teacher, a priest. Uh, for for those listeners who uh, maybe. Never were LDS and don't know uh, young men in the LDS Church are, are ordained to be a deacon at the age of twelve, a teacher at the age of fourteen, and a priest at the age of sixteen. So it's kind of like a a progression that you go, that every LDS uh, male teenager goes through. Um, but but uh, in those in those uh, particular uh, priesthood offices, you know, uh, you pass, prepare, and bless the sacrament, the the Lord's Supper, um, and that was that was nerve wracking uh, mostly because our young men's leadership would come down hard on us if we were a little bit too, uh, maybe, maybe loose with our, with our humor while we were doing those kind of things on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, if we joked around, so, or, or even if we made too many mistakes with the sacrament prayer, you know, which is a a verbatim prayer that you have to give, um, and, you know, we would, they would come down hard on us because, you know, you, hit, you have to be respectful of these things. And, and, you know, the, the congregation is watching and the, you know, if you, if you, what, what are you going to do if, if you mess up somebody's ability to, to be reverent in their repentance time during the, during the sacrament, if you mess up the prayer too many times and they can't concentrate on what they need to do. So, you know, those kind of messages were, were, it just made it feel like a heavy weight, um, but I, I kind of thought of the ironic priest as a preparation to hold the real thing, right? The Melchizedek priesthood. Um, and, and you're kind of taught to view it that way as well. Uh, I went home teaching with uh, an older companion uh, who was my young men's president at the time. And we would go home teaching to this uh, single mother in the ward uh, whose husband had cheated on her and left her. And she was. A single mother working with a Down syndrome son and her, her needs both from an emotional standpoint and a and a financial standpoint were far beyond anything I could provide for or even figure out how to meet as a teenager. Uh, and yet you're there and and you you know your calling as a as a teacher, quote unquote, in the in the LDS churches to be there and provide for that person's needs. And Um, you know, again, it just, it just felt like a heavy weight that I was not in any way prepared to bear. Um, I mentioned the blessing that I gave to my basketball coach with my dad, uh, the the problem with that. and, And it's, and it's one of, it wasn't just that I didn't like the guy that I kind of protested to my dad that I didn't want to go ask him if he wanted a blessing, but also I was only a priest at the time. So my dad was a high priest. I was a priest. He held the Melchizedek priesthood. I did not. I should not have been able, according to LDS teachings, to lay my hands on that man's head or his son's head and participate in that blessing. Uh, And when I protested that to my dad, he was like, no, it'll be fine. You know what the scriptures say. When when there's not another elder present, you can help lead a meeting. This is the same kind of thing. So, you know, we went ahead and did it. But that left me with a lot of guilt because I felt like I had usurped an authority that I didn't have. Um, and so for, yeah, for a long time after that, I, I felt guilt and worried that I had brought down God's condemnation on my head by by pretending to an authority that I didn't have. Um, even though, uh, you know, really all we were doing was praying for him and giving him comfort and his son as well. So anyway, um, but when I, when I finally was ordained an elder uh, it did kind of feel like I had arrived. Um, there's a Bruce R. McConkie quote. Uh, in, I have it in one of my mission journals. I won't read it, um, but it's basically, it talks about, uh, you know, being a, a bearer of the priesthood and and how kings and, and everything will like uh, be jealous of you and all this kind of stuff, all this uh, language of, of trying to make you feel superior because you hold the priesthood. Uh, and, yeah, as as a young missionary, uh, after having been ordained an elder, I I read that. And, yeah, it really made me, you know, puff up in my chest and feel important. Um, so uh, did it give my family a sense of security that I held it? Um, yeah, I think so. I think my, my children, when, I, when we were still in the LDS church, uh, liked getting blessings if they were sick. Um, my wife did. I know... I think I've, I shared in one of my, uh, blog posts that, that is posted at, at water-to-wine.org that, um, you know, one time my wife and I were going through a, a miscarriage and she asked for a blessing and I was not able to muster the faith to bless her that everything would be okay. Even though that is all I wanted to do, I didn't feel like that situation was in my control. Uh, and so I didn't Bless her that everything would be okay. And then, as you said in your intro, Michael, you know, then you end up feeling like, you know, uh, I didn't have the faith to bless her. And and what if things would have been different if I, if I had the faith to bless her. Right. Um, So you feel like a failure. But uh, if, if God is sovereign and in control, then what happened is exactly what happened and what was, uh, what was uh, ordained to happen by God and and Latter-day Saints do reach that same conclusion when they give a blessing and it fails. And they, they reach the questions I talked about earlier. They reach the same conclusion that, well, it wasn't God's will. So, you know, in some sense, they, they do cop to the idea that God is sovereign.
2: Yeah, that is true. I've, I've definitely seen that happen several times like well, I you know I misinterpreted what God's will was, and you're right about what you said earlier too. I mean, it does fill you with with pride when you think about holding the priesthood, especially you know you think about how few people there are on Earth that are LDS, much less you know worthy priesthood holders, and, and you start to think, wow, I'm really the salt of the earth. Um, but what what thoughts do you have on this, Matthew?
3: Yeah. Uh... I've got a lot of similar ideas. I've got, I, I felt really impressed when I was Latter-day Saint of how special the priesthood was. And we've kind of already hinted about this, but if we think about it, if we really boil it down, if we get down to brass tacks, what is the difference between the LDS church, at least when we were LDS, um, what is the difference between the LDS church and the rest of the world? And it's the priesthood. Because I mean, you can say, well, we have the correct teachings about God, but in the end, you know, you can still teach them those, those things, you know, they can learn about it either now or in the eternities, but, but really matters is the priesthood. You know, if you don't have the priesthood, your baptisms don't matter. Your confirmation doesn't matter. You don't have temple ordinances. You don't have true prophets. So without priesthood, you know, that's, that's what makes the LDS church the quote unquote, only true and living church upon the face of the earth. That's what, at least that's what the LDS leaders taught when I was a member, maybe they're kind of changing how they, their emphasis on things. Um, but in my family, we weren't really active, so it didn't really play a major part in my life um, in terms of like going off to school or finding a new job or something like that. You know, I didn't ask my dad for blessings. Um, I, was, I was fortunate enough to have my dad ordain me to, um, to be an elder. So um, that was just a special experience for me at the time. To you know, because because my dad and I were both kind of returning to activity in the church, so it was kind of a special experience for both of us to be able to share that. Um, in terms of giving our family a sense of security, I mean, like I said, my family, my parents weren't married in the temple, um so yeah, it was a little bit different. I I, I mean, I felt it's kind of a strange story, but. I felt secure after having received the priesthood because before when I was kind of returning to activity, I was just devouring lots of books and I forget which book it was. If it was like journal of discourses or, or something like that. But um, I remember reading either from Brigham Young or another LDS prophet where they said that, you know, at the Melchizedek priesthood, you have the power to cast out demons kind of a thing. And I had read accounts of early Latter-day Saints that had, had such encounters or had performed exorcisms or things like that and so when i started reading about that i started to get like semi-paranoid that there's going to be like a demon you know that would visit me in the night before i was ordained an elder and i'm like what am i gonna do like i'm not i'm not an elder yet you know how am i gonna cast him out i don't have the priesthood you know no one in my house has the priesthood like what am i gonna do so that was kind of like on my mind um a little bit uh so that was kind of kind of interesting looking back on that now but um and afterward, after receiving it, I felt I felt similar to how Paul was explaining. It was kind of like a burden. It was like a not not like a burden, but a weight. You know, it, it felt like, um, you know, like when you're carrying around a lethal weapon, you have to consci- be conscious about it. Okay, where is it? How much ammunition do I have? Is it safely holstered? That kind of a thing. You know, like the priesthood was something that was very special, and you had to treat it as something special, but also dangerous if you don't use it correctly. You know, like it could bring disrepute on the church or on Christ if I were to misuse it or abuse it. So I was, I was always conscious about those things and about being worthy, but I think we'll talk a little bit later about being worthy of the priesthood. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I really like your analogy about the, uh, the gun because uh, man, that is so true. I mean, it's like, it gives you security, but it also gives you anxiety at the same time it's it's a double-edged sword for sure um so i I was thinking about this question too and i think holding the priesthood if if i want to talk about the positive aspects of it first it was proof of my worthiness in the church that i held this this priesthood it was a sacred responsibility and uh i know that it gave my family a lot of comfort um you know my ex-wife uh would often ask for blessings if she got sick or if my son got sick as a little baby. And so it was always nice to feel like we had uh, something up our sleeves in case there was ever an emergency. You know, we were never truly at the mercy of anything because we always had this backup plan. And that was for me to use the priesthood if it was necessary. Um, now, the problem with with having this this priesthood is I had this this extra weight. Like you guys said, there was this extra accountability. And I felt like if I sinned that it was going to be greater condemnation on me because I was a priesthood holder. So I was on a higher standard. And so I often felt, you know, just extra guilty, uh, extra condemned in my life because I held the priesthood and I often didn't believe that I was worthy of this priesthood because there was such a high standard to that priesthood. I looked around and I saw the priesthood leaders and I thought, man, these people, you know, they, they probably never have an unclean thought in their lives. They're sitting there with their white shirts and their ties and and they would just talk like they had everything figured out. Like they were veterans on the path to eternal glory and it was easy for them. Uh, I don't know, did you kind of get that impression too, Brianna? What was it like with the priesthood in your house?
1: Yeah, so I had my dad. He was the priesthood holder, and I don't know. I guess it kind of brought a sense of security in a way, but at the same time, there was also this underlying fear um, with him and his priesthood because, I don't know, he would – I I would just feel like if he were to give a blessing and there were certain standards to follow and I didn't keep them or things didn't turn out the way they did, it wasn't his fault. It was my fault. And like everything hinged on my obedience and my worthiness. And if I wasn't worthy when I received the blessing or afterwards, it like, I don't know, there was always this fear of, shame and humiliation that would come after that and it would always be in the presence of all my other family members and we'd always have to hold like we'd always be watching each other to see if we were you know on the right path and I don't know it I felt like with the priesthood in my family it seemed like it was like this title and I had to like show extra respect to my father like he's royalty and i don't know that's just kind of my experience you know you
2: i totally forgot about that um because there's so many different conditions for a blessing actually working and and i always thought of this is the, the priesthood holder that my worthiness would dictate whether or not the blessing worked, but I forgot that they often said that the person receiving the blessing, that their faith was a factor as well. So if a if a blessing did not work, then it could have been that the priesthood holder, you know, wasn't being obedient enough, or it could have been that the person receiving the blessing didn't have enough faith. Um, but if it did work, then it was the priesthood, you know, it was the priesthood, the priesthood always, always works it always triumphs but in the event that it doesn't work it's not the priesthood's fault it doesn't mean that the priesthood's not valid it just means that the people are imperfect or it wasn't god's will
0: yeah did you guys did you guys find that um elders quorum would kind of devolve anytime you would be talking about priesthood blessings like somebody would have an example of a healing right in their family usually several generations ago, maybe the, the person giving the lesson would share it. And then people would start asking, the, then guys would start asking the questions. Well, what about this? And, and and Michael, like you were saying, you know, that the excuses would come, well, maybe the faith, maybe the person giving the blessing didn't have faith. Maybe the, and the, you know, then the person, <laughs> the elder who's asking would be like, no, I believed they were going to be healed, you know? And, uh, and then the, you know, then, the, then it becomes, well, it's a it's the faith of the person receiving the blessing. So if they didn't have enough faith, then that's, that's why it didn't work. Did you guys find that, that lessons on this devolved quickly into that kind of conversation?
2: Yeah, I think that that happens, you know, fairly quickly. I think you're right because you got to start coming up with defenses, you know, whatever you can really quick for the priesthood still being valid because like Matthew said, if the LDS church does not hold the authority. If they don't have the priesthood, then they're not special
4: Mm -hmm. at all. Yeah.
3: I don't remember any cases where, so if I understand, Paul, you were saying someone gives a story about how someone was had a priesthood blessing, but they weren't healed. Is that what you meant? Yeah. I was a little bit confused.
0: Yeah. So like a lot of times it seemed like an elder's quorum Maybe the person giving the lesson would would share uh, an anecdote of someone in their family generations ago that was healed miraculously uh, because they wanted to give evidence of, of the priesthood being legitimate. And then someone in the class would ask about it, about a blessing that they had given or a blessing they had received that didn't work, you know, and then then the excuses start coming out as to why it why it must not have worked.
3: Right. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah, I was, I was a little bit confused. I was like, wait a minute. I thought the story was proving that it did work. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Some, some switches crossed my head. Um, I don't really ever remember cases like that um, devolving into Elder's Quorum. But but there are there were some weird circumstances, like got into a weird discussion on my mission about who gave uh, Adam the priesthood. And then it started talking about temple stuff, and then that started kind of a commotion. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, that was kind of weird. But um yeah, as far as that, no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember having a, a fairly lengthy conversation about who baptized Adam and what it must have been what it must have been like for Adam to be to have been baptized by the Holy Spirit.
4: Hmm.
0: With a with a Hungarian gentleman that was a member of the church. <laughs> um I wanted to ask you a follow-up, Matthew, uh, because you mentioned that you were ordained as an elder by your by your dad, and I was as well. Um and I remember kind of like midstream on my mission thinking, oh, you know, I've heard all this stuff about lines of authority. I should ask my dad for his line of authority. So I asked him and he was so my dad. My dad, when I was ordained, was a high priest, but he had been ordained a 70 when the church still had local 70s quorums back in the 1970s. And he had been ordained a 70 by uh, Milton R. Hunter. I don't know if you're familiar with that name or not. He was a 70 in the church and wrote several books that were pretty popular. Um, And so he always kind of held on to that as like, I was ordained a 70 by Milton R. Hunter, by an actual 70, an actual general authority, you know, first quorum of the 70. And And so when I asked him for my priesthood line of authority, he was like, well, I don't know which one I should give you. I don't know if I should give you the Milton R. Hunter one or if I should give you the one when I was ordained a high priest, you know, because technically a 70 is a higher level. Right. So it was just kind of interesting. Did you did you ever ask your your dad for your line of authority? Yeah,
3: I did. Uh, He never had it or kept it. I don't think I think he got it from his dad when his dad was a high priest. Mm -hmm. Um, But beyond that, he didn't know. But then Mm. when I was kind of like, it's actually funny. It's a funny story because when I was actually questioning uh, whether to stay LDS or not, like after I kind of had, I'm not even sure if it was before my, like being, you know, my experience where I feel like I was saved. I'm not even sure if it was before or after that, because there was like a period where I was like, you know, Hey, I know Jesus, you know, like I can make this Mormon thing work, you know? And then like, I was trying to adjust and add the Bible into my beliefs and stuff. Mm. I was making like a Hydra monster of, of Christian and Mormon beliefs. So I actually sent a letter to like church headquarters and asked them to send me my line of authority. And so a few weeks later, they sent it back to me and I was like, man, this is awesome. You know, like this is really cool. So I like, I made a little tiny little card and printed it out and like had a laminated and everything. So I could like carry it with me, you know, cause I, could, I felt like that was a special thing to carry. And so I still have it in my wallet as just like a memorial of, you know, At times, a lot of the same. But yeah, um, I thought that was important, you know, and and it's kind of strange. It's like you're saying, you know, like. If you can tie, I don't know if have either of you guys had this experience where people could tie back their priesthood to like Brigham Young or, you know, like one of the prophets and they'll be like so honored that they can. It's almost like a genealogy tree, you know, like, oh, I'm the great, 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 great grandson of, you know, King Henry VIII or whatever. It's kind of like that, like a priesthood, a genealogy. Did you guys ever experience that?
2: Well, I mean, mine actually has Brigham Young in it, my line of authority. Wow. But then it had a bunch of other people that I had no idea who they were. So, I mean, I was just kind of, you know, wasn't that impressed with it. I mean, I thought it was cool that Brigham Young was in there for sure. But, I mean, I'm more impressed by my current line of authority than I am from <laughs> the uh, LDS line of authority. <laughs>
0: yeah I, I remember, you know, when I asked my dad for his and he wasn't sure, I was on my mission at the time, so it was over a letter that I was asking him and he was responding and and he uh, he ended up asking our bishop at home which one he should give me. And he, and he actually didn't have the one from when he was ordained a high priest. That had happened in our home ward um, gosh, I don't know, at so, some point when I was a kid. Uh, and he, so he didn't have that one. Um, but he did have the one from Milton S Hunter or Milton R Hunter. And so, um, he asked our Bishop and the Bishop was like, I don't know which one you should give him probably the one that, that was current when you were ordained. Cause those local 70 quorum seventies quorums were disbanded. Um, so he didn't have that one. So I did end up having to get it, get it through my mission office to, to request it from the church. But I remember that kind of raising some questions in my mind, like, okay, they've done away with an, with an entire organization at the local level. What does that mean for priesthood? You know, questions that you don't really think about before you start digging. So it was interesting. Did we lose Brianna?
2: Uh, Just for a second. She's stopping the cats from fighting. Oh, okay. They're little, they're little monsters um also you know i'm uh i'm auctioning off any cats if anybody's interested in them well if you auction
0: them off she's just going to get more oh my gosh (laughs) have you not thought of this
3: yeah speaking of hydra it's like you cut off one cat two or three grow back
2: (laughs) yeah i know they just start like flying out of her sleeves, like, where are these cats coming from?
0: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's angry. that is, angry. that is, angry. that is.
3: We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own, it comes to us from without. Thus, outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around.
0: Hey, Fireflies. The final section of this episode contains discussion of sensitive topics, including sexually abusive questions asked of Latter-day Saint youth in bishops' interviews, drug addiction, and death. We wanted to give you the option of bowing out of this portion of the episode, should you so desire. Thank you.
2: What are your thoughts on the, what were your thoughts on the church hierarchy? Did it give you, did it give you a sense of security in your opinion? Was it an asset or was that a detriment to the church?
0: Yeah. So clarifying question for you, what What do you mean by heart hierarchy? Do you mean all of it, like from the local bishops to the apostles?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, all of them.
0: Yeah. So I think I mentioned before that that kind of before my mission, I wasn't really dogmatic about LDS truth claims uh, or even authority claims. I I was more of a pragmatist when it came to my my personal beliefs. Uh, for the most part, like I I had really good friendships with people who were not LDS, and um, I viewed them at the time as as you know good kids, good friends. Uh, And so I, um, I was a pragmatist, you know, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I wasn't dogmatic. And, uh, so I, I kind of felt the same way about church leadership. I didn't, I didn't have a strong sense of, oh, this makes us special because we've got apostles and stuff like that. It was part of my culture because it was like all encompassing in Utah, but I, I didn't feel particularly attached to that as, as a necessity uh, within the church, uh, even though I imbibed on a weekly basis, the teachings that made it. So, uh, I didn't feel a connection to that. I do remember, um, I do remember feeling good though. Like when I would listen to conference and I would hear a couple of voices in particular, um, Spencer W. Kimball and Bruce R. McConkie. And I think that as I think about that, it's probably because when I was younger, like really little, um, my dad would take me to the priesthood sessions at the stake center or at the, or at the uh, tabernacle, if we were able to get in there. And, uh, so, you know, I think, I think just hearing their voices reminded me of those times when I was little and with my dad and felt like I was special going to this priesthood thing, this, this all kind of all boys club. Uh, so yeah, I, I felt that, but in terms of, um, the hierarchy giving me a sense of security? I, I don't think so. Um and I didn't I didn't feel strongly about whether or not it was an asset or a detriment to the church until until I kind of went on my mission. I think in the MTC is where I really uh you know I was I was facing having to go out and teach people, you know, something that that we were going to be claiming was the truth. And so at that point I felt a real sense of urgency to Uh, determine whether i believed the exclusive truth claims and the exclusive authority claims of the lds church and and at that point yeah i i became kind of dogmatic about it but not before that
2: all right let me ask the uh the matalorian what he thinks
3: (laughs) matalorian
2: yep the Uh, mm,
3: matalorian i need some work (laughs) need some work um, in terms of the hierarchy, I thought it—I thought the hierarchy of the church kind of gave a lot of a lot of structure to the church, and I think it does. I think the LDS Church is probably one of the most hierarchical structures of any religion in the world. You know, maybe Roman Catholicism has a beat. I don't know, but you know, they've got everything from the local all the way up to you know the very top of the church and uh, i see I, I see that as a strength and as a weakness because uh, I, I don't know I, there was someone that was posting in one of the discussion groups about how they're so blessed to have their their prophets and we we're, we're not supposed to criticize the prophets you know the lds prophets we're not supposed to criticize them or say anything wrong about them or speak ill of them so then it's so then it makes me think okay well then how are they supposed to be corrected how are they supposed to be if they do something that's not in line with scripture, how how are they supposed to be corrected? How are they supposed to be reproved? Um, I guess they could do it to each other, but if they're so disconnected from the rest of the, the body of Christ, then then how how is there accountability? You're basically told to not question them. So I think that's a real issue with the LDS Church. So it's a pro in terms of you know they've got they've got kind of like a military almost organization where you know you have a chain of command. In case something comes up, you have this very structured organization to deal with it. But at the same time, it's like the higher up you go, it seems like I don't know. Maybe it's just my imagination, but it seems like there's less accountability to the people as a whole. You know, they're kind of put on a higher and higher pedestal. I mean, I guess figuratively and literally. You know, at general general conference, they're standing above the entire. You know, I guess they're they're still technically you know below, but you know you, you get what I'm saying. Um, but I didn't. So there is some security there, but at the same time, it always felt like, I don't know. I don't know if either of you had these thoughts, but it felt like going back to the mission days, you know, most missionaries aspired to be the district leader and then the zone leader and then the assistant, you know, and when you see somebody called as a bishop or you see them called as a, uh, you know, as a council member, uh, state presidency, something like that, you're like, wow, that guy's just really righteous. You know, like he's just living his life the right way. That's the way I want to live my life, you know? And, I kind of, in in that sense, I was like kind of aspiring to leadership, not in the sense of, you know, wanting to hold my power over or abuse my power over people, but because like, you know, I want to, I want to work my way up because that's, you know, that's the way that uh, I can serve the Lord and things like that. And so I kind of saw it as almost like an ambitious type of thing, but at the same time I thought to myself, I was like, well, you know, you can't really make yourself uh, a bishop. You know, you can't make yourself a stick president. I mean, first of all, you got to get married, which I've had issues with. <laughs> it seems like I can never make that work out. Um, but yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of things, a lot of things I have on my mind about that. But I think, I think overall, um, yeah, at the time it did give me kind of a sense of, of security. But I, but I do think that it's, it's way over structured. The church has way too much going on, you know? like when, when we see the early church evangelist was not a church office, you know, it was just somebody who shared the gospel. Um, there, there wasn't a first presidency and then quorum of the total apostles and then quorums of 70 and, you know, like 15 million hierarchies, you know, like the 70 were just people that were empowered to go out and preach the gospel. That was it. You know, like it, it was nothing more than that. It wasn't like a special priesthood office. So, I mean, in terms of a biblical sense, yes, it's a detriment because it's not biblical, but, um, I kind of give the reasons why I think it's a detriment overall.
2: Yeah, no, Really good, uh, really good insight. I, I remember that too, uh, being a missionary and wanting to be the district leader and, and then wanting to be the zone leader and then actually becoming a zone leader and being like, I hate this. Why did I want to be a zone leader? Like I want to go back to being a district leader because the zone leader was too much paperwork, which I hate paperwork. And I loved, you know, kind of teaching the other missionaries how to, how to do stuff. So district leader was much better for me. Um, so yeah, that, that's a really interesting thing you brought up. Totally forgot about that aspect of being LDS.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's good to know that uh, the ZL is all paperwork. Cause I made it to DL and I hated that, but I was also a branch financial clerk in a, in a st- small branch where the finances were like four months behind so I spent a lot of time with the the branch president trying to figure out, okay, do you have a receipt for this funeral that you bought flowers for? Do you have a receipt for, <laughs> you know, trying to get the books in order uh, every Sunday and, and Tuesday night. Um, so yeah, I felt like district leader. Well, I guess it was two different callings, but it, yeah, I hated that time on my mission. I stopped aspiring yeah. to leadership after that point.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's certain leadership callings where it's just like, why? Like, you know, and and I was in an elders quorum presidency for a while too. And I felt really honored to be in the elders quorum presidency. I'm like, this is really cool. This has never happened to me before, but then we'd have these long meetings on Thursday nights that would just go for three or four hours. And and my wife at the time would be texting me like, when are you coming home? I'm like, I don't know. Never.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Brother, brother Johnson has been teamed up with, with brother, Hansen as home teachers for four months and they haven't seen any of their families. Maybe we should split them up and put them with somebody else. Maybe that'll help get them go- with that kind of meeting, Michael.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of meeting. Yep, yeah, Let's put all these elders together and find them companions. Um, I remember one time I was in a ward with one of my friends and we went to the to the, Eld- the elders corn president and I'm like we're like why don't you just make us companions you know we'll go home teaching because we know each other and we get along and he was just kind of at the point like well we have really dismal numbers so sure go for it <laughs> it's pretty awesome um do you have any thoughts on the hierarchy of the church Bree
1: mm.
2: anything to add
1: uh, I can't think of any um, I was so, going to yeah. mention too,
3: like uh, I always thought it'd be interesting because I was part of a couple singles wards. I, I always wondered what those elders quorum, you know, those elders presidency meetings were like. It's like, okay, you know, Sally, you know, because everybody's single, right? Well, I think Sally would be a good uh, choice for Bobby. You know, <laughs> you know, like like awkwardly trying to you know pair people up.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's more like we can't have we have we have to break them up because we yeah. can't lose. <laughs> We can't lose our uh, ward mission leader. We can't have no replacement. <laughs> <laughs> They're all going too fast.
0: I've got a sidebar kind of question um, okay. with regards to your like your local priesthood leadership, because uh, we just asked the question if we viewed the the hierarchy as a, as an asset or a detriment to the church and. You know, there's always the, the claim made that that the LDS priesthood is superior to anything else in Christianity because it's a lay priesthood. Nobody's getting paid for what they're doing. It's volunteer service. It makes it better. It makes it more pure in some way. What was your experience with your local leadership? Did you did you have them on a pedestal? Did you have experiences with them that uh, made you realize that they're just like you and me? What, what was your experience?
2: So I'll I'll go ahead and answer this kind of with the other, with my own question too, but uh, I I viewed the whole hierarchy really positively. You know, like I kind of said in the introduction to this episode, nobody else had prophets or apostles. And even if I didn't always agree or find their talk super inspiring, just the fact that they were there gave me something to boast about to everybody else. You know, like, well, I have a prophet we have a prophet in our church. And and my cousin asked me one time, well, what's so special about that? I'm like, I don't know. Like how can you even ask me a question like that? Like what's not so special about that? But I felt the same way about the local leaders as well. Uh, I always had really good bishops my whole life. You know, people that seemed really down to earth and that were easy to get along with. And I always felt like they were inspired and gave good advice and, and that they were there to uh, to help me grow and to listen to my problems. And so, yeah, I always put the local leadership on a, on a pedestal myself.
0: What do you think, Matthew? Uh,
3: could you repeat the question? I've kind of forgotten because I thought I answered.
0: How did you view local leadership? Did you have them on a pedestal or did you have experiences with them that that kind of made you realize they're, they're just kind of normal guys.
3: Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I always had a pretty high view of my local leaders. There were a couple of times where, um, I had bishops that seemed very stern, you know, very, I won't, I won't say cold, but kind of, how would you say, you know, less welcoming or less warm and, and inviting than some of my other bishops were. Um, uh, But I always seemed to have, you know, I seemed to have respect for them, especially because I knew how much time they were putting into their callings, especially the Bishopric, how much time they were putting into it and how much they were spending a time away from their families to serve here and how much, how difficult it would be for their families. So I always had a lot of respect for them. And even after they were released from being Bishop, you know, you kind of see them, I don't know about you, but it always seemed kind of like they're retired bishops and retired stake presidents or whatever. They seemed like you know, like they're, they're still, they're, they're kind of like the Trumps of the spiritual world. You know, it's like they've made so much money, you know, they can retire now. And it's like, they're just like a spiritual powerhouse that's in your ward. That's not part of the leadership anymore, but they're still there and you can kind of glean knowledge and stuff from them. You know what I mean? Um, So it's like, they're still kind of, they still hold a higher status, you know I mean? People Latter are Saints still call them Bishop even if they've never been a bishop for 20 years, you know, it's like a title that stays with them forever. So, I mean, I think in general, the LDS membership views them as that calling as something special.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, And what you just said reminds me of kind of why I'm asking the question. So yeah, there's that whole status thing where they remain bishop forever. I remember when I was younger our ward was going through a changeover or had gone through a changeover in Bishop. Uh, and it had, been, it had been several months and the prior Bishop walked past my mom and I while we were sitting in the in the foyer. And my mom was like, hey Bishop, you know, and they talked for a little bit. And then when he walked away and left, I, I asked my mom, I said, well, he's not Bishop anymore. So why are you calling him Bishop? <laughs> And uh, she said, "Well, you we always call them. They they remain a bishop forever. You know, you always call them bishop." Um, but I also remember, you know, I had some some experiences with local leaders that, you know, you, there's there's this whole um, kind of mythology that goes around with with local leadership in the LDS Church. Oh, they're they're inspired, right? The callings that you're you're asked to perform are inspired. They come from God. These these men pray over them, and when they invite you to to serve in a calling, it's something that you shouldn't turn down because it's calling from God. Right. And, um, when I, was when Angela and I were first married, um, you know, we, we had, uh, two young children and I was working, she was working and, uh, there, she was doing medical transcription. And there was a period of time when, uh, the volume that she had been working was severely cut back and so our income was and we were really struggling to try to make rent and um i remember going we went to our bishop to ask for assistance and uh he turned us down He was like no he's like let's look at your finances and we went over them he's like i think i think you make enough that that you don't need assistance but we were like barely able to, to make rent and get food on the table. And uh, I remember being really angry with him about that for several weeks uh, until I finally just had to go and admit to him that I was angry about it and, and ask for his forgiveness for being angry with him. Um, and he then called me to be the ward mission leader. Um, and, you know, I I picked up two jobs. Full-time, a full-time job during the day and then a part-time job at night. And so I was away from my family. Uh, my son had just been born and I was away from my family, you know, 18 hours a day. And I was trying to serve as a, as a ward mission leader. The missionaries in the area were really struggling to try to find time with me because I was working all the time. Um, and I remember one Sunday morning, I had to go to ward council but we only had one car. Uh, so, you know, I called my bishop and I said, I, I won't be able to make it to ward council. We only have one car. So if the family's gonna come to church, I've gotta wait for them until they're ready, you know, cause they're not coming to church at seven in the morning for ward council. So he said, well, I'll swing by and pick you up, you know? And so on the way to the church, I remember we're, we're having this conversation and, you know, he was asking me about serving as word mission leader. And I was explaining to him the difficulties I was having, you know, I'm working two jobs. I don't ever have time to see the missionaries. They're frustrated with me because they're not getting what they need from me. Um, and he was like, and he admitted, he's like, well, you know, uh, he's like that one probably wasn't inspired. <laughs> I, was, I was just like, what? What are you talking about? I one probably wasn't inspired. I mean, I probably could have told you that given what I'm experiencing, but wow, I can't believe you just admitted that to me. And I wasn't more Mission Leader for very much longer after that. So
2: you just wow. reminded me of a, of a crazy story, Paul, in the singles ward, there was this young lady that was, um, she was called to be the ward pianist and she accepted the calling but she had all this anxiety and, and they kind of asked her like why and she said she didn't know how to play piano <laughs> and then the, the bishop was just like oh my gosh so they like totally just released her right away but it was just like um that one wasn't that one wasn't inspired but i was, I was kind of thinking too because i didn't realize you were a ward mission leader too but this is just kind of a funny story War, ex-ward mission leader to ex-ward mission leader but i remember i was sitting in in ward council one week and, and they were telling everybody their budgets right so it's like oh the young men you have this many hundreds of dollars the young women has this many hundreds of dollars the elders quorum et cetera. Et cetera. and i'm like so bishop uh what's our budget for the mission and he just smiles at me, and he starts chuckling, and he's just like, zero. I'm like,
4: wow. <laughs> it's
2: like you would think that missionary work would have a higher priority, but apparently
0: not. It doesn't cost any money to shake down members to try to give them to give you your their friends' names, Michael. <laughs> um, did
2: you want to comment? Brianna, all the local leadership?
1: Yeah. Um, well, one one thing that I kind of just experienced as a girl growing up and uh, with all that, I remember going in for, like, interviews a lot. Um, it started from right before I got baptized. I got one interview there, and uh, I remember... Uh, just when I was really young, just right when I was, before I was eight and right before I became a young woman, woman, uh, at the age of 12, I remember sitting in there and I don't remember the exchanges that happened in there, but I do remember afterwards coming out of there and I was in tears and I don't remember why or what happened, but I would just always be afraid to go in there and to talk to these leaders for some reason. Um, And I I remember I had like a certain phobia uh, and I still have it, but um, I would try to talk about it too. I tried to talk about it with one of my bishops when I was older because it was getting worse. Um, And then... I thought that maybe if I opened up about some of my struggles, even though it doesn't have anything related to do with sin, maybe I could feel comfortable in talking to them because I had no idea why I was having so much, a hard time talking to them. Um, So I talked about my phobia and um, and ended up turning worse than before. And he would ask me more probing questions and he tried to allude it to something sexual. And it made me feel very uncomfortable. Um, And ever since then, it just, with that Bishop, I would get pulled in during seminary and he'd be asking me questions and they would all be sexually related um, and very probing. And, I was always very afraid to go back to church, but I had to keep going. I had to, and my dad, especially, he was in very close contact with my bishop. Um, He served with him and they would talk all the time and they were good buddies. And my dad would be like, you tell the bishop everything he needs to hear. And if I find out that you don't, like there's going to be consequences and there would be a lot of threats, um, just kind of hidden in behind the scenes.
2: So this is one of the reasons I'm really glad that we have you um, on this episode, Brianna, because you know, this, this topic, you know, priesthood in the LDS church is a very man, man man-centered topic typically. and, And I wanted to bring the woman's perspective in on this too, but from your perspective, would you say that the the priesthood was used as a tool to control you or to control people in the
1: church. Yes, I would say it would be there for more compliance. And, um, yeah, and I really struggled then, too, when uh, my, my father had cheated on my mom. And then we found out about it, and my mom tried to bring it up to the bishop, and she had to sit down with him. And my mom would tell me about it afterwards and say that the bishop— was basically telling her that it was her fault, but he would go down these paths. So I'd be very angry with the leadership. And yeah, it was around that time. I was, a, I was a teenager in high school and I was just already kind of like questioning authority at that point. And that really kind of ticked me off.
0: Yeah. I'm really, yeah. I'm really sorry. You went through that. Um, had to be terrifying and, and very difficult to deal with as a, as a young woman. Um, and I know you're not the only one uh, in the LDS church who has dealt with something like that. Uh, it, it kind of reminds me of um, when I, when I was pretty newly Christian, um, I had my, there was a, a friend of my son uh, who lived in our neighborhood. And I, I knew his parents, you know, because they they lived nearby, and, and our our children had been friends for for several years from elementary school on, and um, I knew that this this kid's parents were going through uh, a separation and, and heading towards divorce, uh, and I and I also knew that uh, this friend's dad uh, had had. He'd gotten hooked on painkillers, you know the opioid epidemic in our country, and um, he was really struggling with that. And the the church we we attend was having men's breakfasts on Saturday morning, and I I decided to invite this this kid's dad to come with me um, to these breakfasts, and so he started coming with me, and it uh, it was really good for him uh, to do that. Uh, he He had several, uh, several months of pretty consistent church attendance with us and and men's breakfast attendance with me. And, um, he was bringing the boys. Um, and then, uh, one day, uh, we got a, we got a call that, um, you know, asking if we could, we got a call from the police, uh, asking if, if we knew these two boys and we were like, yes. And, um, they asked if we could uh, come and get them uh, from their house and keep them at our house uh, as a safe place until their mom got home. And so we did that. And uh, my, my friend John had had overdosed and his sons had found him when they came home from school that day and got off the bus. And uh, I remember it blew up my world. Um, because, uh, you know, he was coming to church, he he seemed to be doing better, Uh, was starting to attend some meetings. And um, I remember just kind of being in free fall and and reaching out to one of my pastor mentors at at the church and and asking for some counseling. And he said, you know, I I would love to counsel you on this because of who you are and, and, you know, our our mentor-mentee relationship. But he said, "I'm not equipped for this." Um, we do have people who are equipped as counselors, trained, uh, educated counselors, uh, and he gave me a number of someone to call. And I remember just kind of being blown away by that because uh, I mean, I know I know there's LDS social services, you know, and I never really had a situation where I needed to to reach out for that. But um, you know, there's there's a lot of situations in the LDS church. Uh, I went through, through some things with. Uh, some things my dad struggled with that were he people tried to counsel him, priesthood leaders tried to counsel him at the local level that weren't equipped to deal with what he was dealing with, and um, you know so, so it kind of blew me away that in Christian churches they they refer you to someone who is educated and trained as a as a licensed counselor. I, I thought that was really good.
4: Yeah,
2: it's a big difference uh, for sure. Um, Matthew, did you have anything you wanted to add to, to that?
3: Or just want to, to say not, thank uh, you for sharing your stories. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook. Where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the
2: Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Castbox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to do lay hands on that subscribe button. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word.
0: You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well.
2: Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at AdamsRoadMinistry.com. Stay bright, Flyer flies.
4: Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know. That you are the Holy One of God.